Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, analysis of the Surface Navy Association's three-day annual symposium this week. But first, lawmakers are working toward an appropriations bill as senior military leaders as they have for the past decade, warn about perils of life under continuing resolutions and the calamity that a full-year CR would inflict. Talks between the United States and NATO with Russia have ended, with Moscow saying that its demands, its outrageous demands, haven't been met, and it has no recourse but to resort to further belligerence. The United States is now accusing Moscow of false flag operations um, to mask what it appears to be uh, its long-planned invasion of Ukraine. Indeed, Moscow is pointing to the failed talks as a pretext for invasion. It's as if the United States and NATO put 100,000 Russian troops in and around Ukraine in what appears to be another land grab. Now, how is Beijing seeing the Ukraine crisis and what does it mean for its further intimidation of its neighbors? Joining us today to look at all of this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend, who is now affiliated with the Center for a New American Security, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies, among his many affiliations. Uh, Everybody, thanks very much for joining us. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And check out our coverage of the Surface Navy Association's annual symposium this week, where our coverage was sponsored by Huntington Ingalls Industries and Raytheon Missiles and Defense. Check out our interview with Vice Admiral Bill Galinas, the commander of the U.S. Naval Sea Systems Command, as well as our Cavus Ships podcast hosted by Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello, who took a daily deep dive uh, into the show. Uh, Don't uh, miss it. And also check out the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful weekly look at all things space. Everybody, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, Jim, uh, happy new year. I'm told that today is pretty much the last day I can say that. So thanks very much for joining us again in this new year in 2022. Um, Michael, as always, uh, start us off. Uh, where are we right? Uh, you know, you uh, and I have been in touch all week and, and you give an assessment of 75% chance that we have a uh, an appropriations measure uh, in March. Better late than never, a little bit like the NDAA. Talk to us about where we are in the status of appropriations conversations on the Hill. Uh, sure. Let me talk about two other things first that really do impact appropriations. I mean, one is uh, Build Back Better Act and, and voting rights, because those are still sucking up some of the time on the Hill, which needs to be devoted to appropriations. You know, after threatening votes on Build Back Better in early January, uh, not only is no vote scheduled, but uh, Manchin said yesterday there's been no discussion on Build Back Better since before Christmas, and he hasn't even spoken to Biden since then. So I think Build Back Better still continues to be uh, dead. And I think that's important, too, because I think that the Senate Republicans are looking to move beyond Build Back Better in order to know that they can start negotiating numbers on appropriations. Uh, The Democrats also seem intent on uh, wasting time on voting rights in the filibuster, knowing they're going to lose those fights. And in fact, uh, Senator Schumer has said the Senate will be in session next week when it wasn't scheduled to be in next week to take a vote on reforming the filibuster, knowing they're going to lose that vote. Uh, Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema have made their position clear, and they are not going to change it, despite the fact that they did visit with the president at the White House last night. Uh, so 
uh, that turns us over to appropriations. Uh, so earlier this week, uh, 11 of the defense, uh, uh, defense associations uh, sent a letter to the, the congressional leaders, both the House and the Senate, urging them uh, to finalize uh, appropriations to get these bills passed. Uh, and then on Wednesday, the Appropriations Committee held a hearing uh, where many of the witnesses were uh, the, ch the service chiefs uh, who testified explaining the damage that the CR has already done, the billions it's already cost them, and the billions more uh, that it will cost them. Uh, and the production is slowed down, how the funds are misaligned, uh, the problems with inflation. And, you know, it, there was a lot of political theater involved in that hearing, Republicans and Democrats both blaming each other. And actually, at one point during the hearing, Congressman Hal Rogers, who used to chair the, the full committee years ago, uh, said this whole hearing was about scoring political points and actually apologized uh, to the Pentagon witnesses for being used uh, as pawns in these negotiations. However, yesterday there was what's called the Four Corners meeting, which is a meeting amongst the chairs and rankings of the Appropriations Committees to talk about uh, uh, the, the Omnibus Appropriations Act. Uh, you know, they, not a lot happened, but I think it's important that they did speak yesterday and they did meet. They all released statements afterwards that they appreciated the opportunity to have these constructive talks and they will continue to, to talk further. Uh, I don't think that they're gonna make the deadline of February 18th. However, there is still some optimism uh, that not only will this get done but before, uh, not, not into March, but by March 1st, because the State of the Union address is now scheduled for March 1st. And there's a sense that they wanna get this done uh, before the State of the Union address. Uh, but it's gonna require Schumer, McConnell, you know, Pelosi, McCarthy to say, this is what we're turning our attention to now. And we just still haven't gotten there yet. So are you still betting on 75% chance that this thing gets done? Yes, I am. What gives you confidence that it's going to get done? Why Why wouldn't, because in Washington, if there's an opportunity to do this stupid thing, you know, <laughs> I'll, I'll I hate you, to say it, right? I, I know. And you and I have been doing this a long time because it always gets done, right? And right. I, I think at the end of the day- uh, From your mouth to God's ears, as they right. say. The Democrats will realize that Build Back Better is, is done uh, for now, and uh, that will allow them to turn their attention on this. And Democrats also need a win. They keep focusing on things that they're going to lose on. They're going to lose on Build Back Better. They're going to lose on voting rights. They're going to lose on the filibuster. This is a win. Get these things passed. Now, there's still some tough negotiations that are going to take place. I mean, we've talked before that the non-defense domestic discretionary numbers are way too high. They're going to have to bring those numbers down. But even when they do, they can go home and say, here's what we did on education. Here's what we did on the environment. You know, here's what we did on defense and infrastructure. These are wins that everybody needs. So I do think they will get there. Um, I, I, I have a, a tendency of believing, actually, that Republicans have absolutely no reason to get any of this done at all uh, because they taste victory, right? I mean, Kevin McCarthy is behaving the way Kevin McCarthy is behaving because he can he can taste the speakership uh, and uh, and the changes, obviously, he's going to make once, you know, and, and he has a much more cohesive uh, right. I mean, we'll have a much more cohesive caucus than, you know, Democrats, you know, a third of all third, <laughs> a third of each. Uh, who who don't like uh, don't like the president? I, I don't um, think so. His his caucus is not cohesive. Right? <laughs> there's there's several camps. There's crazy. Uh, there's fearful, and then there's not so crazy. And there are a lot of Republicans uh, in the conference, including McCarthy himself, who understand the damage that a year long CR uh, will do to defense. Uh, so uh, I still think we're going to get there. I uh, I will I will agree with you 
that they each privately have different views, but publicly they tend to stand together much, much more so uh, than is than is the case uh, as as we've seen, unfortunately, from uh, from the Democrats. Right? I mean, dep- unfortunately, depending if you're a Republican, you absolutely love it. Um, Dove, let me quickly uh, bring you into the in, into the discussion and sort of get your take on how you think uh, the budgetary discussions are going to break out as well. Well, I, I would like to share Mike's uh, optimism. Uh, I'm deeply concerned, first of all, about the defense budget itself. You know, at the uh, hearing this week about CRs, it became pretty clear that uh, inflation is going to knock between 45 and $50 billion uh, in real terms out of the defense budget, which means that it's totally eaten up the $25 billion add-on that has yet to be appropriated. Uh, in, while, and we're going to talk more, I know, about uh, China and Russia, but while all that's going on, uh, to have the defense budget have that kind of a serious crunch is a huge problem, uh, which was one of the reasons why uh, that hearing was held, because there's now a fear, and I think this goes to your earlier point, Vago, that the Republicans don't mind if the entire appropriation is held up for a year, including the defense appropriation. Uh, The one thing they might do, they'll make an exception for pay raise for the troops, but it's not clear they're gonna do very much else. And so at the very time that we're facing major crises in uh, two two major parts of the world, Asia and Europe, uh, reminds us of World War II, Uh, we are cutting our defense budget in a very significant way. Uh, And so uh, I hope Mike is right, because uh, a year-long CR or even an extended CR on top of the inflation is going to really hurt the defense budget. Not not to uh, recap you, uh, Dove, from several decades ago, but every once in a while, actually, a shortage of money can actually force smarter decision-making. I think a little bit of the frustration is that the department's not getting its hands around how it is to spend how it should best expend the resources that it gets. And then invariably, the money that Congress has a tendency of giving the department ends up sometimes not being what it is they really need, uh, but what it is that members want to support in their own districts, right? I mean, so- um, Yeah, no, you know. look, Vago, that's fair up to a point. Uh, I've been in these budget drills more times than I want to uh, frankly think about. And what de- what tends to happen is not that the department becomes more efficient, but that because these drills tend to be very fast, short-term, quick response, they involve meat axe cuts across the board, uh, programs that probably should be prioritized get dropped in favor of programs that the budgeteers in the department know more about, or rather the programmers do. And so it's not gonna prompt efficiency at all, I'm afraid. Well, alas, uh, I hope, you know, I don't know if it's a definition of insanity, right? We keep doing the same things and we hope for a better outcome. And alas, here we sit without opposable thumbs to to, uh, cross-connect it to a Gary Larson cartoon. Um, Something which is not funny, uh, Jim Townsend, uh, is uh, the absurdity of of, um, talking to Russia and assuming you're going to stop them from invading Ukraine when that was their plan all along. And we once again in the international community have sort of played into Russia's um, narrative, right? Uh, well, look at these unreasonable uh, Americans and Europeans and NATO guys. We have no recourse but to invade and do what it is we need to do for our own uh, security. Um, talk to us about the talks 
whether it even makes sense to negotiate with somebody at the end of a gun, uh, even though Link Bloomfield was on this week and sort of said, like, look, I mean, we we did that throughout the Cold War. We've, we've always done that. Um, but ultimately, whether or not it's just gross weakness. I know that anybody who knows me knows I've been saying this since 2014, right? Right after the NATO summit, after Newport, we said NATO territory was inviolate. Russia violated NATO territory uh, across the Baltics, seizing an intelligence uh, officer, a fishing boat, train breaks down in Latvia, and we do nothing about it, right? Um, so ultimately, what is it? Did we make a mistake? And B, what is it we need to do with the Russians in order to be able to at least enforce some discipline? Because to me, it seems like everybody wants Russian money, Russian titanium, Russian gas and oil. So we don't really want to be that tough with them, right? What, what has to change here? Um, because it doesn't appear that any of the threats we're making are changing his fundamental calculus. If the threats mattered, he wouldn't mass 100,000 troops on the Ukraine border. Well, Vago, um, thanks, thanks for that setup. <laughs> Let me start off this way and say we're not we're not going to be doing talks anymore. I mean, the past 24 hours, the rhetoric coming out of Moscow, the rhetoric coming out of allied capitals, including Washington, it's not about setting a date for another talk. That's behind us. What we have to see now is that, and we have to think about, based on what you all just said about the defense budget and all these kinds of things, um, we are in a brand new era. We have been here for a while, but if there is anyone who thinks we're not, uh, they might as well resign and go live on a mountaintop somewhere because right now we are dealing with a post-post-Cold War time with the Russians. And if you're looking at the defense budget, for instance, and you haven't factored in putting more forces into Europe, uh, including Navy ships, including some squadrons, that's coming. That's coming. If he goes into, uh, into back into Ukraine, for sure that's coming. But regardless, no matter what happens, he continues to bully. We see a lot of this hybrid stuff going on. We are going to have to get back in there with both feet. Uh, I think this administration, I, I hope, I hope this administration understands that. But the allies do too. We are now, we have got to deal with a very aggressive and a very dangerous Putin uh, who's got a lot of forces that he's going to be using. So that's going to have ramifications, not just for the U.S. defense budget right now. But if you think there are some drafts of the NATO strategic concept and the EU strategic compass, if there are drafts in existence right now, they might as well tear them up because NATO, as well as the EU, all of us, we're in a different world now. And we got to scramble to make sure we understand that. The idea that we're going to have a stable and transparent relationship with Russia, you know, whatever this administration said early on, that's over. That's absolutely over. We've got a big problem right now, and, uh, and, and, and we can't wait for him to, 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 to take the next step. So I'll say it again, whether he goes back into Ukraine or not, we can't be chasing this guy around Europe from crisis to crisis. So, uh, so I'll just let me just lay that and say, as you look at the Hill, uh, as you look at NATO, as you look at this administration and how they're staffing up, we had better staff up for a whole different situation in Europe uh, and 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 China. I mean, Jesus, uh, these, this administration came in with with China being its foreign policy priority. They better think again. Uh, they better share that priority with Russia because Russia is the is the today threat. Uh, and based just on the past 24 hours, the cyber attacks, 
Um, Sweden has placed off its troops on alert. They're bringing their guys back out of Mali. Uh, they are, uh, you know, they're warning their people that uh, that things are afoot. Uh, the, the Finns, the Swedes, thinking about joining NATO, obviously something big is happening here. Uh, and so we have got to come to grips with that as a nation. And that's going to be reflected in a lot of what you all were just talking about when it comes to legislation on the Hill and the budget. Um, I, I want to uh, get a little bit deeper into that. And I should point out that the, the uh, headline, you know, when I said pretext, uh, the United States is claiming Russia has positioned sabotage, sabotage operatives in eastern Ukraine uh, that could create a false pretext for war. As we've, as we've seen, Jim, in, in our uh, chat room, you're like, hey, we've seen this movie before. It's called uh, August, September 1939, right? I mean, when Germans right. went into Poland, uh, or, or, or rather, uh, German, uh, German troops dressed as Poles came into Germany, shot up a radio station, and then, you know, we had, we, we had World War II uh, start. Um, uh, Patrick. Uh, the the Chinese and the Russians have made connections, uh, as I as we have observed on this program, uh, and and folks have noticed uh, between Russia's claim over Ukraine again a gray area, right? I mean, no treaties that actually protect Ukraine, and very similarly, you know, they're making the case that this is just like China and Taiwan, right? The two of these guys being in uh, in in cahoots. Um, I, I do have to say, Vladimir Putin keeps getting prettier. Uh, as, as time goes on, whereas Xi Jinping uh, still has that lovely mane uh, of, of, of uh, well-coiffed black uh, hair. Anyway, um, talk to us a little bit about how Beijing is looking at this situation, uh, Patrick, and what that means, because we're basically, you know, uh, d- despite what Jim said and everybody's recognition that we are in a different ballgame, we are not behaving as if it's a different ballgame. Um, and, and we're still... I think ultimately more interested in dialogue because we are not interested in fighting. We're not interested in taking the tough decisions. We want continued access to that gas. We want Russian oligarchs to keep buying houses in Palm Beach uh, and visiting Palm Beach and spending money in Palm Beach and London and Paris and Geneva and elsewhere. Um, I mean, ultimately, how are the Chinese looking at this situation and what what are the messages they're picking up? Because nobody is more effective at, at blurring the lines than the Chinese are at a time when they are stepping up the intimidation of their neighbors, right? I mean, you, uh, uh, you were quoted in an article about China's intimidation of supply ships going to uh, the Philippine ship that's wrecked on a reef so that the Philippines can exert their sovereignty over something that has uh, historically been their territory. Walk, walk us through how Beijing is looking at all this. Well, Vago, right now, China's watching closely as Putin writes the book about great power revanchism. Um, yeah, they're they're learning from each other, but but Putin is ahead really in this game in terms of how he is pushing into the old Soviet empire, you know, already in Belarus and Kazakhstan, Ukraine, the Baltic states. Um, he's escalating tension. He's maneuvering forces. He's posturing for a pretext. Um, he's threatening to uh, deploy forces to the to the uh, Western Hemisphere. You know, re- repeat a, a Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, he is uh, exploiting Biden's, uh, you know, desire to have diplomacy first and not peace through strength. Um, and he's apparently conducting uh, massive cyber attacks on Ukraine. Um, that may trigger sanctions, says Ambassador uh, Julie Smith. Um, but if you look even at North Korea with their third missile test of this young year, um, sanctions don't seem to be uh, much of a threat to anybody right now. Um, and China's watching this very closely because Russia's winning the contest left of boom. And they, they know that, that Putin senses U.S. weakness in div- division. Um, and they want to see whether they will be able to exploit it as well and how should they exploit it. But 
China probably has more to lose, even while they're going to dial up and down pressure at this point. Um, there's still risk in this year when the narrative is meant to be one of triumph, not of crisis uh, for Xi Jinping, right? From the Olympics to the 20th Party Congress I've talked about. Um, and, you know, they're also watching a, a steady buildup of an anti-China coalition. Um, China-Australia's defense pact this month, AUKUS, working on groups under Jim Miller's uh, leadership for the U.S. in terms of both building nuclear-powered submarines, advanced capabilities, the Quad working ahead on high technology, India now selling uh, the BrahMos anti-ship cruise missile that's on virtually every Indian surface platform. Um, this has a Russian engine, by the way, uh, which is an extra, you know, fill up to the fact that Russia and China really do have some divisions, um, not just in Vietnam and not just elsewhere. Um, but right now they seem the United uh, countries. And in fact, the Danish intelligence agency, Pat, just put out a, a report about uh, uh, major espionage challenges, not just from Russia, but China as well. MI5 put out an unusual interference alert, right, about this London lawyer, Christine Lee, influencing parliament, um, funneling huge sums of money to one member, labor member of MP of, of parliament. Um, but China's worried about eroding uh, their power, uh, and, uh, and they immediately rejected the State Department's report this week uh, called Limits in the Seas, which was a great uh, refutation of China's nine-dash line in the South China Sea, right? Calling out its excessive maritime claims across, you know, whether there were submerged features they shouldn't be claiming, drawing straight baselines they shouldn't be able to draw, making maritime zone claims they shouldn't be able to make, uh, using historical claims that are outside of international law. Um, and, and immediately, of course, China came back and said, well, you didn't even ratify UNCLOS, so you can't talk about it. Um, so, but China has more to lose, is what I'm, my point here is. And yet, um, as Jim Townsend suggested, uh, Russia and China are posing a two strategic front challenge to the United States right now. And the United States doesn't even want to play the hardball that Russia's playing. Uh, China's also playing it, but a little less hardball. Um, and if it, if it ratchets up the pressure on us, as it will, uh, from time to time, uh, where will we be and will we be divided? And can we bring along this great coalition of allies and partners we've been striving to uh, knit together and strengthen? Um, Dove, uh, let me uh, bring you uh, into this. So what is it the international community needs to be doing uh, at this point, right? Um, we are, uh, as Sauli Ninisto, uh, the Finnish president, uh, pointed out, uh, you know, quoting Henry Kissinger, uh, when you take force off the table, ultimately, whoever wants to violate the international order is going to do so knowing that there are no repercussions. I know that your argument is uh, to pour troops and equipment into uh, Ukraine, no, and, no, no, and that no. argu arguably could stop uh, that from no, happening. I, I, I wouldn't pour troops particularly. Um, we already have trainers there. I just thought we should send some more. But let me back up. The first thing we should be doing is getting Germany to say Nord Stream 2 is finished. The Ukrainians will be, will be broke if Nord Stream 2 happens. It'll make Europe much more dependent on Putin. Putin knows this. And Putin thinks that the Germans are not going to stop that project. And quite honestly, the administration has waffled on that in a very, very serious way, which, again, is an indication of weakness. So if they really want to play economic hardball, it's not a matter of SWIFT, the banking system, or sanctions. Because quite honestly, and I've heard this from some of uh, Putin's Belarusian allies, uh, they're prepared for that. They've known that for ages. And, and in fact, Tony Blinken said on NPR he wasn't going to say 
what we were going to do to Russia, but the, he said the Russians know what we're going to do to them. So quite honestly, none of that stuff's going to work. The one thing that the Russians don't know will happen, if you're talking economics, is Nord Stream 2. So that's number one. Number two is I honestly believe that the only way to get Putin to back down is not to say we're going to go to war and, and not to send troops. What we, we can do, apart from letting the whole world know that we're expecting Ukraine to, to get blown out of the water and then to fight a guerrilla war, which is nuts, that's not what you want to say, is to send a, a Berlin airlift type uh, operation, give the Ukrainians everything they want and tell Mr. Putin, fine, make my day, shoot my planes down. He's not going to dare to do that. He doesn't want a war with the United States. And that's the only way to push him back. But unless we take the uh, offense probably is, is gives the wrong impression, but unless we take the initiative as opposed to simply saying, oh, please, let's talk. And now we won't talk. And oh, if you cross this red line, we'll do something. Look, red lines have not worked for us before. Um, Jim Townsend said in our chat that we're in 1939. Not yet. We're in 1938. He's not going to take over all of Ukraine. He doesn't want a guerrilla war. But what he does want is to consolidate everything in eastern Ukraine, maybe even in Kharkov, because those folks tend to be Russian Orthodox and not Catholic, Russian speakers and not Ukrainian speakers. He knows this. And if we let him do that, then Sudetenland becomes Czechoslovakia, Czechoslovakia becomes Poland. I'm going to, Jim, I want to give you an opportunity to take a bite at this, Patrick, uh, and then Michael, whether members are looking at this differently. And then we wrap it up with uh, Dove. Uh, go ahead. Real quick, last point is we really don't know what the next few weeks are going to hold. We really don't. The last 24 hours have certainly not been uh, very good ones in terms of not heading down the road to something kinetic happening between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, but at the end of the day, we Putin loves vagueness. He loves to fuzzy things up. He loves to keep us guessing and back on our heels. So we don't know what the next few days are going to hold. So it's, it's hard to make conclusions. Just watch this space. Patrick. Well, Vago, there's a lot of heat right now, but we need a longer term strategy. And uh, we have to be tough. I like uh, Dove's idea of uh, focusing on something not that is with troops, but uh, indirect, but tough and unified. Um, and recognize that we can get Russia overcommitted. Um, they already are on the verge of being overcommitted. Um, and if, if we can show they can be easily overcommitted in their excessive reach, uh, we can also uh, build a stronger coalition in the Indo-Pacific to, to convince China that uh, adventurism uh, will lead to bad results for themselves. Um, I, I would like to believe that, because actually, if you look at it, Russia is doing everything to actually isolate uh, itself. Uh, but if you, the number one uh, priority, if you're Vladimir Putin, is to, you know, assert yourself in your near abroad, whether it's in the Caucasus, whether it's in Belarus or Kazakhstan, he certainly is succeeding in in sort of, you know, uh, uh, creating greater links among all these countries uh, and, and Mother Russia. Uh, Michael, are lawmakers sensing that we need a more muscular stance against both of these nations, uh, ultimately, that actually we're at greater danger by, by being pushed around? Uh, and allowing authoritarians to pretty much write the book for us as opposed to the other way around? Yeah, I think that there is. And I think there's uh, both Democrats and Republicans that feel that way. And although there are plenty of Democrats, I think, that do not feel that way. 
But I think that there are Democrats and Republicans both that feel that this administration just is, doesn't seem to be taking uh, defense and national security uh, seriously. I mean, the administration is not leading to try and get this omnibus appropriations bill passed. Um, I think you know Dove pointed out uh, last week, I think correctly so, that his speech on, on Trump was very divisive. And his speech this week on voting rights was also very divisive. Even members of his own party came out and said he went too far. And here's a guy that was you know, elected not just to be the commander in chief, but also to be you know, the healer in chief and also a uniter uh, for a country that just went through four very divisive years. And he's going to need to unite the country around some of these national security threats. And we're getting, we're getting indications that his defense budget, what, when it comes over in late March, uh, will be a cut. Uh, not just flat, but be a cut. We're looking at if, if, the, if they do pass a, a bill of $740 billion this year, the numbers we're hearing are going to be about $730 billion. And that also sends a signal uh, internationally that he's not taking it seriously. And I think, you know, what Jim Townsend said earlier is, is spot on. I mean, he, the Biden administration is repeating the same mistakes of Obama to do this pivot to China and not take Russia seriously. And Russia is uh, today's threat. And as Patrick said, you know, we really do have a two strategic front right now. And I frankly don't even think people in Congress recognize that as much because there's too much China, China, China talk. And we are a country that is globally engaged and has global threats. Michael, do you think that actually, given the likelihood for voting rights uh, as well as Build Back Better are so pretty much nearing absolute zero, um, that where Biden could make his mark is actually on security and national security and actually martial unity around that vector, as opposed to the ones that he wanted to Right, Latter-day FDR is not going to happen, but actually he might be able to make progress on national security. Do you think that that's going to be maybe where he goes in terms of a lasting legacy or is forced to go because of an inability to drive his domestic agenda? I mean, for God's sakes, the Supreme Court, you know, complained about vaccination mandates, right? I mean, so. I think if, if, it, if one of those scenarios uh, plays out, it'll be the latter. That he's forced to go there. Uh, I think that you know Biden's staff seems to be uh, very close with the progressives on Capitol Hill and the progressives' agenda. I mean, you see, there's a lot of you know slaps at Joe Manchin saying Joe Manchin's president. I, I would say I think Bernie Sanders is president. You know, because th that's the agenda that this administration has been pushing. And I think that uh, unfortunately they may be forced into a position uh, to make national security their priority. And uh, let's uh, head over to you, Dove. You wrote a great piece in The Hill about China's influence in the Middle East expanding. Talk to us a little bit about that piece. Uh, and I commend everybody to read it. Go ahead. Well, it, it goes to what we've been saying about the need for the United States to act as the world, the, the world power it is with interests worldwide, as Mike just put it. Um, the very same day that the state issued the report that Patrick uh, rightly said was tough, China signed a, a Belt and Road Agreement, this uh, economic development agreement with Syria uh, of all countries. And at the very same, and again on the very same day, four foreign ministers from the Gulf, uh, including Saudi Arabia and Bahrain, who are supposedly uh, allies of ours in a very serious way, uh, part, and Bahrain is part of that Abraham Accord too, plus the secretary general of the GCC, the Coordination Council, are also in China announcing that they want to have a free trade area with China. What that tells me is that apart perhaps from the uh, Iran deal that we're still trying to get, the signal the administration has sent, whether deliberately or inadvertently, or probably some combination of both, is that we're just not interested in the Middle East and China is walking through that open door. 
And so Patrick's warnings about China and Mike's concerns about uh, America's interests worldwide are very much to the fore here. If, and of course, if we don't fund our forces to be able to be uh, influential in not just Europe and not just Asia, but still in the Middle East, we're gonna find that not only the Russians are gonna run circles around us, but the Chinese will run even more circles around us than they already are doing. Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us uh, this week. As always, uh, always a pleasure having you guys on the program. Hope you guys have a great weekend and a great week and looking forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks a lot. And a word from our sponsors, GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of Joint All-Domain Command and Control. And joining us now is retired United States Navy Rear Admiral Mark Montgomery, the Senior Advisor to the Bipartisan Cyberspace Solarium Commission, who is the Senior Director of the Center on Cyber and Technology Innovation at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. Uh, Mark, uh, always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you, Vago. Pleasure to be here. Great to have you on. You are a uh, highly decorated, uh, nuclear qualified uh, former uh, surface warfare uh, officer. Uh, obviously, we just got through three days of uh, Surface Navy Association. A lot, uh, lot to uh, discuss, given all the messages from senior leadership, from the chief of naval operations to the SWO boss. Uh, Admiral uh, Kitchener uh, to Paul Schleiss uh, in requirements, uh, General Brigadier General Odom uh, in amphibious uh, uh, and expeditionary warfare. Um, talk to us a little bit about some of your key takeaways, uh, Mark, because um, over the decades, you know, and, and certainly over the past decades, we've been hearing a lot of the same messages of wrapping our arms around it, uh, leaders uh, saying, hey, help me figure out ways to use uh, littoral combat ship. Uh, all the while, the Navy is sort of preparing to uh, get rid of the littoral combat ship and it hasn't even built out the class. I mean, what did you make of some of the messaging uh, we were we were hearing, right? Admiral Caudill, the new fleet forces commander, uh, a submariner, I should point out, you know, got universally great reviews for for his comments. What, what were some of the things that you carried away, especially since you were listening, not just to the public messaging, but also involved in some of the uh, off the record or off channel conversations among uh, retired uh, and serving flag officers? Well, Vago, first, I, I talked to uh, the SWO boss, uh, Vice Admiral Roy Kirchner's comments. Um, you know, I, I like the idea of, uh, of coming out with a plan for maintenance and, and establishing a competitive edge. Um, but, but I'm a little worried about the package. In other words, I think in the things that the boss can control, like getting witties or warfare tactics instructors into the acquisition, that's a really neat idea that will have a benefit, but it won't have the big benefit. The things that to get surface maintenance right, we actually have to do something crazy, which is pay for surface maintenance. Surface ship maintenance has always been the last bill played when compared to submarine maintenance, aircraft carrier maintenance and aviation maintenance. And that's because the first three things there involve either, uh, you know, the potential of a nuclear incident, you know, a nuclear incident, by that I mean spills or maintenance problems, uh, or a safety incident with a, with a pilot, you know, turning into a lawn dart, you know. And so um, obviously the, the SWOs come in third at the, at the maintenance dollar trough. Unless we put more money into that trough overall or direct money to surface warfare, you're not going to get that competitive edge reestablished. So while I applaud the effort, I think some of the small things, the things where he can control it, the swole boss is controlling it properly, until he's able to get money into that bucket, we are not going to get surface ship, uh, surface ship maintenance whole. 
And, and I'll add one other thing in there, Bugo. In this year's National Defense Authorization Act, uh, Representative Gallagher and, and others, Senator Cotton and others, put in a requirement that is long overdue and one that I've been pushing hard, and that's that the SECNAV has to brief the Congress on the aggregated risk from all these delayed maintenance availabilities. What I mean by that is when a ship gets extended three months in CENTCOM, they bring the decision to Secretary of Defense and they say, uh, we really need this, you know, Frank McKenzie, uh, General McKenzie, the CENTCOM commander needs this, uh, needs this uh, ship for three months. And uh, we've talked to the shipyard and they can roll the ship three months. Of course, the back end of that is the ship gets back three months later. And yes, they're in the shipyard, but they're in the shipyard with two other ships now there's overtime work and some of their modernization package has to fall out to get it done. Plus they were underway three extra months, three more months are expected. More things are broken. So things have to come out of the readiness and repair packages. And the crew's unhappy because they're being worked on back shifts and, and overtime. And then finally they drop into the training cycle where again, they're an added ship, maybe sharing a TLO, a training liaison officer. So at the end of this whole cycle, you end up with a less modernized, less ready, less trained, and you know, probably, unless you have a phenomenal captain, lower morale crew, that aggregated risk, that doesn't happen one time a year, Vago, that happens 15 to 20 times a year. And the Secretary of the Navy and the CNO and the SWO boss don't get in the meeting with the SECDEF to try to explain this at each ship's uh, uh, extension. But now they'll have to do this annual report. And I gotta tell you, the SECDEF's not gonna appreciate what the SWO boss writes for the SECNAV and tells the Congress, Here's what happened because of those 19 extensions. Here's all the damage to modernization, to readiness, to training, to morale. If the Navy does this right, they're going to help control their future a little better than they can control it now. So there is a little bit of light at the end of the maintenance um, you know, uh, tunnel. But if they don't get more dollars, none of this is going to matter. And look, right. I mean, ultimately, uh, they did get 25 uh, billion more uh, dollars from Congress, as you uh, rightly put it. Right. It was somewhat intellectually bankrupt because it was focused on uh, on some of the wrong things. But ultimately, some of the vibe you get from the Navy is that folks are doing this to us, as opposed to actually this is the result of the actions that the Navy has been taking for a long time. Right. I mean, at what point does the Navy have to take uh, you know, grab its future with both hands and sort of say, look, I'm the guy who is ultimately responsible. We're the guys and gals ultimately responsible for the future of sea power. Um, because it, it doesn't seem as though the service right at the heart of the Air Force is air power. At the heart of the Army is land power. And it's not abundantly clear that sea power is at the heart of what the Navy does. You know, it, it's like an aviation and a submarine and a ground and a surface ship. Uh, navies and institutions, all of which are sort of struggling against one another, and it doesn't seem to be the best way to run a railroad. You're right. That, that $25 billion that came in, a lot of it was for, I mean, five, five more vessels and um, I think 85 plus more um, or a significant number more F-35 aircraft uh, and I think 12 more F-18s and uh, a few more F-15 EXs. Uh, the reason I, I say that is it was a lot about procurement. And you're absolutely right. Until the Navy says that our, our key uh, you know, unmet requirement is the funding of the maintenance of these ships uh, so that they will both be modernized and ready when they come out of a normal cycle, uh, the, the surface Navy is going to be very, uh, is gonna be challenged to meet its requirements. Now you hit on something else there, which is that the surface Navy and I gave you the reason for the maintenance. It's, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to compete with nuclear maintenance and uh, definite, you know, kind of uh, 
learned in blood aviation required maintenance. And that's a hard thing for the surface ship maintenance to compete with. But we also struggle in selling the surface ship mission. And look, the, and that's because the, the surface ships play this very strong role in the deterrence of China and the, the blunt and contact forces to use the uh, last national defense strategy. But when you transition to the kind of surge and, and high-end combat, they play a supporting role. Now, look, without them, the aviation and submarine uh, assets won't be enabled for victory. But it's sometimes hard to explain your role when in the, the apex of the war game, the most important thing was your Virginia-class submarines. The takeaway everyone gets is build more Virginia-class submarines. And look, I want to build the maximum number of Virginia-class submarines we need to. We just need to understand that when you add that with the Columbia bill, you really get close to you know some very high two-thirds to you know two-thirds or more of our of our shipbuilding construction money getting tied up in the in that and the aircraft carrier nuclear maintenance, uh, nuclear procurement. I want to shift gears to another uh, procurement question uh, on DDGX. Uh, uh, Admiral Kitchener sort of framed what he wants the next future destroyer to look like. Obviously, we're delivering on the Flight 3 version of the DDG-51, uh, the Burke class, but everybody acknowledges that the Navy needs a new uh, generation uh, of surface warfare uh, platform that has the tubes uh, and the growth space and the volume. What's your sense on the ship that he defined and, and whether or not the Navy is going to get it right, right? I mean, the last couple of ship programs uh, have not gone as well, although all eyes are on the Constellation class frigate uh, that's being uh, developed now by Fincantieri Marinette Marine uh, is going to get it right. And there's a sense that that's going to be a very good ship at the end of the day. What was your sense on Swill Bosses uh, and, and, other, uh, and others in uh, across the flag community about what that new ship should look like and the attributes it should have. So first, I, I did like the uh, the brief that we that was given on the on the new on the new destroyer, and, I, and I'll say this: we're doing one thing right right off the bat, which is historically the Navy either changed the HMNE, the whole mechanical and engineering of a ship, or the combat systems of a ship between ship generations. We didn't change both simultaneously. So you think about you know the Spruance to the Ticonderoga, the Ticonderoga to the Burke. We broke that with the uh, with both LCS and the, um, the littoral combat ship and with uh, the Zumwalt class. And in both cases, we really struggled with the development of the ship and the fielding of the ship. And uh, so I like the fact we're doing that right. Um, I, I worry a little bit that they <clears throat> what they show is a 132-cell VLS. I think VLS tubes matter, whether they're VLS tubes or they're less tubes, but longer, you know, hypersonic type missiles, doesn't matter. So I'm hoping when they talk about the destroyer payload module, they're talking about packing a whole bunch more missiles into the ship from the very get-go, because you cannot deliver replacement destroyers um, with only a 32-cell VLS, um, uh, you know, to the fleet right now. Um, now, here's the real problem. It's a good-looking uh, idea. I think it's they're on the right track. I think everything's going well. The problem is they're not going to win the competition with the SSN, uh, the, the Virginia class replacement, and with the next generation, the, uh, the F-35 replacement. Those two, service, th those two elements of the service are doing a much, uh, have a much easier job explaining why their vessel is needed going forward or why their aircraft is needed going forward than, they, than the Navy does selling this DDG-X over the Flight 3 DDG. And as long as we look like we're just kind of iteratively improving the Flight 3 DDG, I don't think that this will compete uh, well with those two. And I don't think the Navy can afford to recapitalize the sub, the fighter, and the destroyer in the same 10-year period. 
uh, especially with Columbia class going on in the background. So I think in the end, they're going to find as good as a, this is, I hope they can pirate some of this, steal it and make it part of DDG flight three alpha or DDG four. Cause I think that's still slightly more likely the DDGX in 2028, which is the year they're talking about with us. Um, let me let me ask you uh, one last question. I mean, ultimately, I, I know, and all navalists believe uh, in a bigger uh, force and a bigger fleet and more resources. But ultimately, we keep calling for more resources, but it's not exactly happening, right? Um, yes, we should take greater risk when it comes to the army. But even if you cut a hundred thousand people from the army, Mark, it's it's ten billion dollars, right? And assuming all of it goes to the navy, it's still not going to address the navy's all of the navy's challenges, right? We're focused on building more ships. We're not maintaining the ships we have. We're also not building the effectors in the volume and the speed we need to be uh, 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 building them. Um, ultimately, what's got to change here? Um, because as I said, the, the Navy has been spending billions of dollars on building littoral class combat ships, uh, littoral combat ships, with every intention of retiring half, if not all of them at the end of the day, right? I mean, I think there are members of Congress uh, you know, uh, we heard from uh, from Mike Gallagher and Elaine Luria talking about sort of this, this sort of nonsensicalness of some of the things that come out of the Navy and its reluctance to ask for more money. But fundamentally, if you're not going to get more money, what are the tough calls to make to actually field the best sea power possible for the amount of money we're spending? Well, first, I'm going to double down on your comment that even if we got if the Army did cut some personnel, and I think they will cut 30 or 40,000. The money that comes for that should and will go to the Air Force who's actually in a much worse position than the Navy right now. So the Navy is gonna to have to heal itself from within. That would get to the point of, we have to decide what are the forces we need for China and Russia? And I'm not, I'm confident that we do not need a two um, uh, MEF or two uh, maritime expeditionary force uh, uh, invasion as part of any China plan or any Russia plan. As a result, we have to think very hard about whether the, the, that the high level of high end LPD investment that we're doing is wise. Now, this is going to be a tricky thing. It'll involve Congress, but long-term, we've got to figure out how to get some of that yard work going to um, additional frigates and destroyers and and maybe smaller, uh, you know, light amphibious warfare ships and not towards that. And the final thing I'll say, Bago, is that we have to really do well in two areas. One, I think fr uh, Frigate 62, uh, the, the Constellation Cast, Constellation class at Fincantieri has to be a success. I think it can be. I think the yard's positioned well. The one thing that'll screw it up is if the Navy gets in there and tinker continues to tinker with the requirements associated with it, it'll drive cost and scheduling crazy. We've got to lock ourselves down and begin to build that and get those ships out to the fleet. And the second big thing we got to do, I was glad to see the mine, the mine, the mine mission package the, uh, for the LCS finally, you know, look like it's moving forward. It has got to get out to the fleet. We need LCSs to replace our mine sweepers. They can do some other things during peacetime, but they, we do need high quality mine sweepers out there. And right now, we have an extremely aging fleet, but the LCS without the minesweeper mission package is not that valuable. And, and then the undersea warfare package behind it, but get the mine warfare package out to the fleet, you know, four or five years late, but still we need it now. Mark, always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Uh, really appreciate it. Look forward to having you back on for a deeper uh, Navy conversation soon. Thanks so much. Thank you, Vodka.
And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.